Welcome to Strictly Jojo, a podcast dedicated to Jojo's Bizarre Adventure, where every Jojo episode is reviewed by casuals for casuals. My name is Courtney. This is episode 14, and we're reviewing part two, Battle Tendency, Ultimate Warriors from Ancient Times. As always, there'll be spoilers for this episode and anything that's happened in the Jojo anime, so you've been warned. So right off the bat, to start this episode, we wanted to share a quick announcement about an update to our podcast format for Strictly Jojo. After giving it some some thought, um, as you just heard in our show opening, we decided to no longer contain or like keep spoilers to anything that's happened up until the episode that we're reviewing for Jojo. So starting this episode and moving forward, spoilers for anything that's happened in the Jojo anime are fair game. The majority of our listeners have probably watched all, if not most, of JoJo, so we assume that you're coming to our podcast because you love JoJo as much as we do and want to hear good, free-flowing, in-depth conversations and analysis about it. Um, and our podcast is, you know, supposed to be by casuals for casuals, and our whole um, intent and our whole goal is to talk about JoJo like you would with any of your friends. So we find our conversations about JoJo are much more genuine and enthusiastic and fun when we can talk openly about like the full JoJo anime universe or story rather than confining ourselves to only what's happened up until the episode that we're on or the episode that we're reviewing. Yeah, because I think we are both starting to realize that even in these early parts, they make a lot of references and homages to things in subsequent parts that we under the former or the previous format we necessarily couldn't talk about without fear of giving out spoilers but since we've changed to this newer format i think we can be a little bit more open about it and hopefully give you a nice holistic view of the series yeah exactly like it's it can be I don't know, I wouldn't say frustrating on our end, but there are a lot of small nuances and big plot points that we so badly want to talk about, but we can't. Um, And a lot of those smaller things get lost forever because it's not practical or feasible for us to bring them up later on. So for example, like in this episode that we're talking about today, Santana is still alive, but that's never really revisited again in JoJo after this episode. Like they talk about him, but they never really kind of bring him back, even though he's technically alive. But with our previous format, we, we wouldn't be able to comment on, on that, um, comment on how we'll never see him again without spoiling it um, or having it be flagged as a spoiler. So this opens up, um, as Carl said, it opens up you know much more discussion potential for us. Um, it also opens up the door for us to have some actual discussion episodes on Strictly JoJo, like who we think are the, you know, the best stands are or who we think the best JoJo's are, where we can talk freely about those two. And if you are listening to this without having any previous knowledge of JoJo, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) No, don't, don't, don't worry. It's going to be okay. Like if you're new to JoJo and you've been following along, but you don't want to be spoiled, we strongly encourage you to finish the JoJo anime and rejoin us for these reviews. Again, if you don't want to be spoiled at all, it's an amazing anime as hopefully you, you can feel that through our discussions and, and our hype around all things JoJo. Um, so yes, we, we still want you to, to continue to listen with us and, and be part of our discussions and our analysis on, on all these episodes. And if you're current on JoJo, 
Look forward to some really good conversation from us as we get all hype about JoJo each episode and are able to finally put together some of these puzzle pieces or tie things into what we see in later parts. Although, thinking realistically, if you were a true JoJo fan, you'd probably have binged the entire series by the time we've reached this episode, which is, what, part two, episode five. Because um, I figure most anime fans out there are just binge watchers. So I assume most of you out there have binge watched either this entire part or this entire series. So hopefully it's not too much of a spoiler for, for those of you out there. And he's speaking from experience because I'm a binge watcher and I finished the mm. entire JoJo mm. anime series. So parts one through five in I think a month. Felt like two weeks. Okay, no, no, you're right. I think it was like like two to three weeks. And then one month later, I forced you to watch it because I was like, you have to see this anime. You have to watch JoJo. And then we finished it probably in about three three weeks a bit longer than my initial binge binge session so it, it is possible if you have the time and the ability and, and enjoy binge watching you can get through all parts in about two to three weeks and it's worth it trust me yeah <laughs> and you can come back to these episodes as a nice reflection on the episodes that you had just watched so so yeah with that said um again look forward to full spoilers about all things in the jojo anime and again we're being very specific about that because um, as we've mentioned before, we don't read the manga, but I have read part six and I will do my absolute best to not spoil anything from the part six manga, especially when we go through the the live viewing when the season um, you know finally premieres. But yeah, look forward to all sorts of Jojo anime discussions. And moving on in the Jojo universe, we were recently shopping for figures and I came across something I didn't know existed, but I think is fucking amazing and perfect for JoJo. And that is the Road Roller figure. You heard that right. You can buy a figure what the from the fuck? JoJo lineup of the Road Roller from part three that Dio uses against Jotaro. And that's it. Google it. It's crazy. It's literally just the Road Roller. You don't get Dio. You don't get Jotaro. You don't get their stands. It's just the fucking Road Roller for the true JoJo fans out there. Like, I feel like you could just buy a, a Tonka truck toy that serves the same purpose. I'm sure there's a Tonka Road Roller out there, but the fact that they created one specifically for that iconic scene in part three that's just that's nuts hey it's over the top just like jojo is I, I think it is really ridiculous but it makes sense for the jojo universe for them to make a goofy like just random figure like that and on top of that that's not the only thing i found when i was looking at figures this weekend i also found out that you can buy <laughs> you can buy a plush version of the frog that Zapelli punches in part one when he's showing Jonathan how to use Hamon. And I think this frog actually does like quote a line from Zapelli when you punch him. Like the intent is for you to punch down on the top of this frog and then it says a line that Zapelli says about Hamon. And I'm like, why? <laughs> why is that a thing? Like to me, I can I can kind of justify the road roller, but was the frog moment from part one that iconic that they would make the frog from it? I mean, I guess like when you think about part one as a whole, it is a pretty iconic moment. But when you think about Jojo as a whole, my mind doesn't immediately go to Zapelli punching a frog because there's some crazier things that happen in Jojo. But hey, they made it and people bought it. Why not? 
Of course, you'd get a frog plush toy before you even get a, a figure of Speedwagon. <laughs> oh my God, there's no fi- there's figures of Speedwagon. Not that from I've part seen. wait from part one. Okay, hold up, I'm googling this shit right now. I mean, there are like bootleg body pillows. Ew! With... What is this nasty ass figure? <laughs> He's like it's creepy chibi, but he looks very uncomfortable. Like his head, like. This is the one where his hat is upside down. Yeah, and there's other ones too where his head is humongous and his body's like tiny, but it's not even like chibi style. He looks like a leprechaun. <laughs> what is this figure? I'm very upset. I do not like this at all. Yeah, I guess uh, so. To rephrase, we didn't, we haven't gotten a proper figure of Speedwagon yet, but of course we get a, a minuscule frog plush that really doesn't <laughs> contribute anything overall to jojo wow you're right yeah I'm, I'm scrolling through google right now and i must have been mistaken there's no proper figure of speedwagon you're 100 percent right oh my heart poor speedwagon we even have figures from some of like the super minor characters like in part five there's a gaccio figure and i mean he was cool and all but he had way less impact on the story in the JoJo fandom than Speedwagon did, but he gets his own figure. Well, I hope at some point we actually do get one, and when it's finally released, I will be the first in line to buy it. We shall see. So let's go ahead and move on to the topic at hand, which is Part 2, Episode 5, Ultimate Warriors from Ancient Times. Um, First impressions for me, uh, it's an episode where you start to see a little bit of a parallel between Joseph and Jonathan's journeys. And I think most notably, it's with the introduction of the newest member of the Zeppeli lineage, which is Caesar Zeppeli. Um, obviously, there are stark contrasts between Joseph's relationship with Caesar and Jonathan's relationship with Baron, where the former are more at odds. And you see that constantly throughout this episode. Um, but what were your what are your first thoughts on on Ultimate Warriors from Ancient Times? So as I mentioned in the previous Strictly JoJo episode, this to me is a really great episode because it sets up kind of the the core story of Part Two. Like this is where that core story really begins when we meet Caesar and when we meet the Pillarmen. And so for me, it's like we get such great characters introduced to the story. Um, and Joseph is finally kind of pushed a little bit more than he has been in the past. He's pushed when it comes to using Hamon. He's pushed with having to get along with somebody who is kind of at his level when it comes to messing with other people um, and definitely surpasses him in his fighting abilities. And then pushed to his limit with, um, or not to his limit, but definitely pushed when he meets the Pillar Men because he thought Santana was tough. Now he's got these three guys who, you know, don't give a fuck that they're even in the room like that's that's some major energy right there and you can tell joseph's very very thrown off by it so i think it's it's just a good episode for so many different reasons and when you know i when i knew that we were coming up to this episode i was just getting so excited to finally talk about it yeah i guess to that point a lot of this episode just deals with escalation again escalating it to the next part of joseph's journey with learning Hamon because time and again we've said that Joseph in these first couple episodes is kind of a noob at using Hamon and you pair that with Caesar who seems to be adeptly skilled at it um, and there's basically a Hamon dick slinging match between the two of them um, (laughs) in the middle of this episode and then the second 
part of the escalation, like you said, is with the introduction of the three pillar men uh, that appear on carvings um, in Europe. And yeah, I I completely forgot that this episode has one of my favorite moments in part two, but I will go into that a little bit later. So let's go ahead and jump right into the synopsis for part two, episode five, Ultimate Warriors from Ancient Times. Joseph who makes his way to Rome and whilst enjoying some squid ink pasta at the local Olive Garden, he unknowingly runs into womanizer slash harmonizer Shiza Zeppeli, the grandson of Baron Will A. Zeppeli Duda, speedwife who tries to keep the peace between the two Hamon hotheads as they have a Hamon dick-slinging street fight for all of the Roman public forum to see. We learn through Speedwife that Santana's stone body has been brought to Washington for analysis by his 501c3 private foundation, where Santana is being kept dormant under UV light, and he reiterates the presence of more pillarmans turning up in Europe. To this end, Shiza arranges to take Speedwife and Joseph to the Colosseum via Nazi Uber, where the carvings are being kept. At the Colosseum site, Nazi soldiers prepare to move the carving to a German bunker for analysis when one of the pillarmans, Wamu, uses his spiral power to break free of the carving, deflating the soldier spirits and their bodies. Wamu proceeds to awaken his two pillarmen masters, Cars and ACDC, in time for our Hamon heroes to arrive to the scene. As the pillarmans depart for their road trip to find the Red Stone of Aja, Wamu gently brushes against their Nazi Uber driver Mark, which slices off part of his body. Knowing that Mark would not want to offer his rideshare services for half-off, Shiza gently euthanizes Mark with his Hamon power and declares a vendetta against the Pillarmans for leaving them without a ride back home. And now into our next segment of the show is that a music reference where we document any and all nods, homages, and tributes that this extraordinary anime makes to the ordinary world of music. And after having almost an entire void of music references in the past couple episodes, we are treated to a plethora in this episode. Starting off with, I guess, Caesar Zeppoli. As we had previously known with part one, um, Zeppeli is a reference to the British rock band Led Zeppelin. And this isn't music related, but his first namesake is an homage to the Roman emperor Julius Caesar as well, which is fitting because this episode takes place in the city of love. So he actually is Caesar. Like, what do you Julius mean? Julius Caesar. <laughs> Caesar <Are> you... is Caesar. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, yeah, I guess his namesake is from that the Roman emperor that we all know from history and from William Shakespeare. The second reference is, of course, Wamu, which is a reference to Wham, an English musical duo consisting of Andrew Ridgely and the well-known George Michael, whom I'm sure all of you know were behind such 80s classics as Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go and Careless Whisperer and its iconic saxophone solo. The third music reference in this episode is the Pillar Man, Cars, who is a reference to Cars, an American rock band who I know for their hit Just What I Needed, which I feel is used in a lot of like car commercials for some reason. <laughs> How ironic. Oh, yeah, I didn't realize that either. Um... And the, what was this, the one, two, three, the fourth music reference in this episode is the third Pillarman, ACDC, who, if you 
haven't already known by now, is a reference to ACDC, an Australian rock band considered by many media outlets to be one of the greatest rock bands of all time. And just to name a few of their hits, you've got Back in Black, TNT, Highway to Hell, You Shook Me All Night Long, and Thunderstruck, which that song in particular, we have this like drinking game that we always play with it where you 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 drink every time he says thunder in the song yeah if you've ever played the thunderstruck drinking game you know you just know it's it's brutal (laughs) and the last music reference in this episode which i didn't even realize until i read further into this the redstone of aja which could be one of two possible references Aja was the name of the most commercially successful LP for the American jazz rock band Steely Dan, which go figure that's going to be a reference down the road in part three. Uh, The second reference, and this is more so with the, I guess, voice actor's pronunciation of Aja, which is sometimes Aja, could be a reference to the English rock supergroup Asia. And I'm not familiar with too many of their songs, but I know that their one of their top hits was "Heat of the Moment." So, see, it's interesting because with these localizations, like this is, I think, where we get the hardest hitting localizations in part two, um, because you have Wamu, which is Wham, but it's spelled W A M U U. So mm-hmm. at least it's close to like how they're pronouncing it from the Japanese voice actor's point of view, but it's Wamu. And then you've got Cars, which they just flipped a, the C with a K, right? Is the yeah. band is the band's with a C, right? Yeah, the band is called The Cars with the C in it. And then here they just slapped a K on it, which is, that's fine, I guess. But the worst one, I think, is ACDC. <laughs> I mean, they really tried hard with this one. It's like E-S-I-D, what is it? <laughs> E-S-I-D-I-S-I, which is, I guess, kind of, They follow the Japanese pronunciation of the character. That's just like, that just makes me laugh. And there will be more. There will be plenty more, as you know, of these Mm -hmm. really terrible localizations. Some where they're not even trying to be close to the original name. Um, But uh, but yeah, that's interesting about the Redstone of Asia. I pronounce it Asia just because I... That's how I hear them say it in in the the sub. Mm -hmm. But I didn't realize that that could have been a, a reference to Asia. That's interesting. Yeah. Again, Asia, the rock band, or Aja, the Steely Dan album. I think it's just funny with the Pillar Men that they're going back to our discussion about figures. Even the official figures themselves have adopted these, I guess, copyright avoiding spellings of the names. Because I, I do remember like going into uh, like uh, Japanese memorabilia store and seeing acdc written um in that spelling on the actual box for the acdc figure yeah gotta avoid being sued right yeah (laughs) but also i just a side note i didn't know that acdc was an australian rock group neither did i you know what you learned something new here, folks, if you didn't already know that. This can be a sometimes educational podcast. Mm-hmm. The more you know. <laughs> now it's time for the JoJo meme rundown, where we list each new JoJo meme that appears in this episode. I have two for this one. Um, the first is actually a reoccurring meme for Joseph. 
Um, but I think the most notable one from part two, and that's when he says, oh, no, with the squid ink pasta, that black sauce um, all over his mouth, which for the longest time, like, I kept thinking when I saw that meme that it was lipstick, but no, it's it's the the black squid ink spaghetti sauce. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, so again, we see this come up plenty of times in part three, um, and that's certainly memeable as well. But I would say of the times Joseph says, oh no, in part two, this is the one that gets memed the most. The other meme I have on my list is one of my personal favorites, Awaken My Masters, when Wamu walks up to cars in ACDC and you know, flings his hands in the air and then taps them on the face and suddenly his masters awaken. I've seen it used actually two ways. So when they hit that pose after cars and ACDC come out of the stone wall, it's like that, you know, the three of them are posing together. I've seen that redrawn with like famous trios like Ed, Ed and Eddie and the Powerpuff Girls and stuff doing that sexy pillar men pose. Pillar men pose. Um, pillar men's. Pillar men's. I know sometimes we'll, <laughs> sometimes if we're talking too fast, we say pillar men as if it's like a last so like, name. Like, like they're an 80s sitcom TV show. <laughs> the pillar men pose. Um, the other way that I've seen it less often is usually with like dick jokes. So I don't know. They'll slap like a hentai picture or like, a, you know, a cute anime girl picture. And then the next panel is Wamu saying, awaken my peepee. <laughs> What? I don't know some that. like sexy lewd scenario where like the guy's gonna get turned on and then like the the bottom panel is awaken my peepee. -pee. Mm. <laughs> so that's how I've seen it, and those are the two memes that I noted for this episode. But as always, if we missed any, please, please, please do let us know. So let's start from the beginning of this episode because so much good stuff happens. First off, squidding pasta is fucking amazing. I just have to say that. And Joseph realizes that in this episode. He's disgusted by it when he first sees it, and then he tries it and says, it's fucking good. I don't know if I've ever... Have I tried squid ink pasta? I don't know. I don't you, know. I, you have, right? Yeah, I've had squid ink pasta both in like the form where the pasta itself was infused with squid ink, so the, the pasta was black. I've also had it where the pasta sauce was infused with it, and so the pasta sauce was black. And for anyone who doesn't know, I'm half Italian, so pasta flows through my veins, and I could eat it all day long. Hmm. Hmm, yeah. <laughs> but the important part of this first scene is the contrast between Joseph and Caesar's personalities. Um, Caesar is super refined, and Joseph is super brash. And I, I've mentioned this before, but I love these types of duos, these types of relationships where two very different people are forced together in a situation and then start to... Um, overcome these, you know, first impressions and start to realize that the other person is reliable or caring or whatever. And then they start to actually develop a real relationship between the two of them where they find out they can work very well together. So I love Joseph and Caesar so, so much in JoJo. Yeah, seeing their initial interactions with each other, not only in this restaurant scene, but later when they're at the fountain. To your point, it's almost like watching the growing pains of like a fresh buddy cop relationship. Kind of like, uh, what are the names? Inspector Lee and Detective Carter in Rush Hour. Hell yeah, Rush Hour. <laughs> Those are some good movies. Because yeah, obviously in that movie, they were in two different worlds and kind of the same thing here where Joseph is being introduced into Caesar's world um, in Italy. But I thought it was kind of ironic that Joseph 
does not like the way that Caesar's flirting with the woman in the restaurant, considering that Joseph himself can also be a flirt. So I don't know if it's just him <laughs> being hypocritical and not realizing that he also does the same things, especially with that woman he saved on the Brooklyn Bridge. But that was one thing that I, I took note of. I think it, well, my interpretation was that it was more Caesar's demeanor of him being snooty and like, I don't know, uppity versus mm. like him being like a womanizer per se. Like, I think that does kind of turn him off too, but I think it's more so the fact that he has like this arrogance to him or this ego to him where he's overly confident because uh, Joseph likes to be the biggest ego in the room sometimes. Yeah, it's true. And another thing I noted was that Caesar pulls out Zeppeli's original like checkered uh, top hat, which Speedwagon originally had, right? Yeah, I noticed that too. So like, my thought was, did Speedwagon give that to him? Like, did he meet Caesar beforehand at some point um, and give that to him, or did he have his own hat? Is it like? a thing in the Zappelli family to all have like this big ass top hat or what's the deal here? Yeah. My headcanon thinks that Speedwagon just gave it to Caesar um, once he was of age. Although they don't say whether or not this is the first time. I guess it... I think it is the first time they're meeting. But later on, Speedwagon mentions... or I don't... I'm not sure now. Maybe like they had a pre-meeting before Caesar met with Joseph. Probably. I don't know. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. I mean, not every detail is quite clear in JoJo. <laughs> I mean, I know that Zep, uh, Baron Zeppeli, he did say he left a wife behind. So it makes sense why like, Caesar is his grandson. It's just not like Zeppeli happened to have a kid later on. <laughs> so like they explain that. It's just this, where did he get the hat unless Araki forgot again? Yeah, maybe the, maybe the Sapelli's just like to have that hat. Maybe it's like the iconic hat that they wear in their family. We'll, we'll leave it to one of those headcanons. Mm-hmm. I enjoy that Joseph plays that Hamon prank on Caesar, though, where he like shoots the spaghetti noodles at Caesar, and then Caesar immediately counters it by like stopping it with a fork that has, like I don't know if you call them macaroni noodles, but like noodles with holes in them. Mm-hmm. Um. And like the the like Joseph's noodles get inserted into the other noodles, and then he turns the foreground and like fires the whole thing back at him. I'm like, what a power move! But if the if those noodles had holes in it, wouldn't Joseph's spaghetti noodles still hit Zeppeli since it could go right through them? Yes, <laughs> the answer <laughs> is yes. But Araki forgot JoJo logic. Mm. That's the best way to describe that one. So talk about an interesting way for two people to meet. Um, I just love that that's how, of all the ways that Joseph could have discovered that Caesar was a Hamon user, that's the way he found out after eating the noodles out of his wine glass and letting the wine spill everywhere. The whole thing is just silly. And Um, yeah, he doesn't even know that that's their contact until the waiter says, uh, like, Zeppeli, Mr. Speedwagon wants to speak to you. Yeah. <laughs> also, where was Speedwagon? Why wasn't Speedwagon at the restaurant? Okay, too many questions about this scene. Let's just, <laughs> let's appreciate it for what it is. Well, in the, the, the next scene, it's in Washington, D.C. So unless, like, Joseph was the one to fly out to Rome first, and then Speedwagon meets up with them after he goes or watches that experiment um, in the D.C. lab. Yeah, that kind of confused me too because I felt like this was a flashback scene because oh, he yeah. mentions like, oh, we need to, you know, honor Stroheim's word or, you know, honor the promise we made him and see the person in 
in Rome, who is William Zapelli's grandson. So yeah, the timeline is a bit um, confusing here. But with this, this scene, we get background on what the Speedwagon Foundation actually is and the areas of science that it covers. So it covers like a lot of different, um, you know, spaces within the field of science. But there's a secret branch of the foundation that is dedicated to uncovering the secrets of the mass. So his work is still not done. Like Speedwagon could have said like, fuck it. <laughs> I almost died a million times. Love you, Joseph. Or no, love you, Jonathan. Love you, Zapelli. But I'm over it. But this man, he is best waifu for a reason. He continues that work in secret to protect his family and to protect the world. And we also find out that Santana isn't even dead, as we mentioned earlier in this podcast episode. So this is weird because, like, he's alive still, and they're keeping him alive. And they they the logic they use is that he covered the outside of his body with stone. And so he's on the inside just trying to protect himself. Like, it's now like a shell of stone protecting him from the UV lights that are on him. And I'm like, part of me just kind of rolls my eyes at this because I'm like, can he just die? Like, I get you're trying to establish this early on in the story that these are some incredibly powerful, like, creatures or whatever. But if we're never going to see Santana again, while he does get mentioned again, I don't think we ever see him again and we never get a resolution on him. Why not just have him die? Why not just have Joseph have this one win? Whether it's a fluke or not, like, why not let him just have that? I think... And this is where we kind of introduce the new format of the show. This is somewhat of a foreshadowing of Cars' ultimate fate at the end of this part, right? Because, spoiler warning, um, when Joseph defeats Cars in the last episode for part two, Cars actually, like, he's, he's immortal, right? But he ends up floating in space, and the only thing he can do is harden stone because there's no air in space, right? And so he just lives on in eternity um, without really dying. But that's only because when he hits ultimate form, he's no longer, you know, um, he like he's he's now immune to the sunlight. Mm, yeah. But also in the previous episode, Santana, when he fell down the well with Joseph, so he turned himself to stone willingly. That's what they're saying is that he's got a shell of stone around him. He's technically alive on the inside, but because they've got these UV lights on him, he can't break out of his shell. So if for some reason they lose power in in this facility, then Titanic could be like, shit, this is my moment and break out of that shell and then, you know, rip everyone to pieces. But then they've established the lore that he was only woken up because he was able to feed off people's blood, right? Yes. So is that going to come into play too? Like he can't, even though it goes dark, he still has to feed off something. To recover, yeah. But there will probably be people in the room and he probably has enough power to like, you know, suck them into his body. I don't know. This <laughs> this stone man, pillar man lore is just so convoluted now. It just makes it feel like Santana basically is kind of a throwaway fight. Like he's important because Joseph needs to understand like the the level of threat that he's dealing with, but he's Santana's only the, like the tip of the iceberg when it comes to the actual threat of the pillar men. And again, part of me is like, if you're going to take the time to show us that he's still alive, like Joseph still couldn't even defeat this enemy, even though we know that he'll defeat the other enemies. Why not just say Santana died? Like what, what purpose does that serve? You know what I mean? Like, I feel it's there mm -hmm. to like amplify their strength, but we didn't really need it because we saw 
Wamu fucking rip through a person and like shear half their body off. Yeah. And I guess, again, looking at it down the road, it, it downplays Cars' immortality because um, that was his, I guess, that was the ultimate goal, right? For Cars to become this ultimate being and to be immortal. But if Santana is technically immortal by being encased in stone, that defeats the whole purpose. And it kind of makes it, like, I get that they can't go out into the sunlight because they'll die, but, like, that makes it less, to your point, it makes it less of a threat, the sun itself, because if they happen to get thrown out into the sunlight, they could just make a shell of stone around them. Like, we know they can do that. Well, actually, I don't know. Like, I don't know if they can, quote, unquote, do that because Cars only is able to do some weird shit with his body after he becomes the ultimate life form. So it's like, I just, I don't, I don't see, like, to me, there's not enough of a purpose that this serves to keep Santana alive, but it is what it is. They do talk about him later, but they don't really ever bring him back up again. So who knows in the JoJo universe where Santana is today. Mm -hmm. We move forward to the scene at the water fountain, which is just, it's just as fun as the restaurant scene. I mean, honestly, every scene between Joseph and Caesar in this episode is just fantastic. But poor Speedwagon, this guy has to deal with these like two children arguing and bickering. And he's probably like, I'm too old for this shit. I already had to save the world a thousand times and everyone around me dies and I just can't. So then he gives us a yada yada and I'm like, oh my God, Jotaro. <laughs> yeah. Y'all knew where that was coming from. Anytime I hear yada yada, not even in Jojo, but in any other anime now, I'm immediately like, Jotaro, it's Jotaro Kujo. Mm-hmm. And I'm sure at the same time, like, you know, Speedwagon was witness to Jonathan and Baron Zeppeli's relationship and how well they messed with each other. And then, as I mentioned at the beginning, it's the complete opposite here with uh, Joseph and Caesar because they're butting heads and you have this entire fight where it's basically one person trying to up the other and Caesar introduces his Hamon ability, which is the bubble launcher and i knew like this was his ability because this is our or my second time watching it but looking at it now it's like what what a weird fucking hamon ability i kind of so i go back and forth on the the bubble launcher because i'm like it's stupid but it's genius at the same time because it's water and Mm -hmm. hamon is obviously like amplified through water but you're also able to allow it to travel a long distance because it's a bubble that can float for a certain amount of time and it's like super lightweight. So they're like little bullets basically of Hamon energy being launched out at your opponent from a distance because Hamon typically is a close range, um, a close range power. Like you have to touch in order to activate it or, you know, shoot something out. But yeah, I, to me, I'm like, it's so stupid because it's fucking bubbles. Mm-hmm. But then I'm like, that's actually really smart. Well, at that time, why not just have like a a squirt gun or not a squirt gun, but like a, a hose ability. <laughs> a hose. Like, no, you're right. Just get like one of those like those Nerf squirt guns or whatever yeah. and just fire water out that way. Because the way I look at it, you kind of juxtapose an image of going back to part one, you have Jonathan with his flaming pluck sword when he defeats Dio at the end. And here it's just blowing bubbles. <laughs> it, it's like bringing a, a squirt gun to a sword fight, basically. It's a, it's an homage to SpongeBob. Sure, yeah, sure. <laughs> who, who was referenced first, JoJo or SpongeBob? <laughs> um, with this exchange between Caesar and Joseph, like it is kind of like I feel for 
Speedwagon and Joseph in this situation because Caesar understands the importance of, of saving the world from the mass because this has been passed down through his family. Um, and he's you know mentioned that like his grandfather died from it and his father died from it. Whereas Joseph is just starting to not only understand his hamon, but even learn about his family and all of the knowledge, you know, about the mass and everything, because he was shielded from this by, um, you know, f- through Ariana and Speedwagon his whole life. However, Caesar doesn't understand the whole picture here because he does comment at one point that his grandfather died because of Jonathan's incompetence. And here's Speedwagon standing there like he saw the truth. He knew exactly what happened and what Jonathan had to sacrifice himself in order to save the world for the time being, because obviously this is still the, the mass and everything are still a threat. But as we see, you know, as has happened in other parts of part two, insulting his family is what sets Joseph off in this moment and makes him more serious and mad. Cause as we know, he's protective of his family. Like before mm-hmm. this, he was, he was getting annoyed with Caesar, but he never actually snapped and like got actually angry at him but when he did insult jonathan that's when that's when he gets pissed and so just wanted to backtrack a bit because speedwagon confesses like you said he kept everything a secret from joseph and that was just for his own protection yeah because i think edina wanted joseph to be as far removed from the mask and all these threats as possible in order to keep him from dying because all the other joe stars in her life have died from the power of the mask Okay. As we'll see when we get more background on Joseph's dad. Yeah, because the other, on the other side of the coin, I was thinking, like, wouldn't Speedwagon rather keep Joseph in the loop considering, like, the, the interconnectedness or the destiny of the Joestar lineage, you know, with this crusade against the stone masks and now with these pillar men? But, yeah, I forgot that, you know, Arina wants her... her proteges to live a long life yeah it kind of backfired on them i think i think their their intentions were great but joseph can't escape his fate yeah as a joe star he cannot escape his fate um and now it's kind of kicking them in the ass a little bit but i i also did note here that um joseph says two things in particular that stood out to me throughout this exchange with caesar he first says like he loves messing with people but he hates being messed with so that's why he's so frustrated with Caesar is because for the first time, Joseph's the one getting picked on. He's the one being teased, but he can deal with it, right? Like he still handles it pretty well. He, you know, tries to play pranks back at Caesar. But then he later comments, once Caesar basically says all those things about Jonathan, Joseph then comments saying he's fine with being insulted himself, but how dare he insult his late grandfather? So it's kind of interesting that like, he refuses or he dislikes being picked on, but like he deals with it, right? Like I think that's mm-hmm. just him being annoyed by the whole situation, but he has no problem being insulted. He would rather be insulted to his face directly than have any of his family members insulted. So these little things that pop up with Joseph that just kind of show that he does have a mature side to him that again, he cares so much about his family. He's willing to be in the line of fire or, you know, sacrifice himself. I think it's just one of those things that is very endearing about him. But I think what's funny is that Joseph technically gets the last laugh in this fountain scene battle. Um, Because at first, like, was it Caesar uses his hormone ability, which this is just out of nowhere, too, where he kisses that woman and then he possesses that woman enough to control her actions 
by like beating up Joseph. Mm-hmm. Um, and like it seems that Joseph has no rebuttal, but apparently he was able to stuff a pigeon into her mouth. <laughs> a hamon charged pigeon. Yeah. And it was, again, to harken back to an earlier comment that he made to Caesar about him being able to, or Caesar not being able to defeat a pigeon. And we get another example of where you can see, you know for sure that Joseph's going to win because he says, now you'll say, Signorina, allow me to release you from my hormone spell, which is what Caesar says. And I think the whole point of this fight is, you know, we've seen again and again that Joseph has very limited skill with using Hamon, but I think here he relies again mostly on his street smarts, um, which in this like in this situation is what allows him to succeed against a very able Hamon user like Caesar. Yeah, he's a big brain time when it counts. And I think for for this scene too, um so I did note that 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 Joseph really only throws out that line prediction thing that he does when he knows he's got the enemy like by I don't know by the reins by the balls by the balls <laughs> um but with this whole thing I just I think back to part 1 where Jonathan on the boat was able to control that one zombie and make him stop the pistons on the ship so that it would explode. Remember, um, uh, yeah, Wang Wang Chung was mm-hmm. it? Yeah, Wang Chung. Um, so he he uses Hamon on that zombie and gets him to stop the the piston. And then this is the first time we're seeing this this Hamon controlling ability come up again. This time on an actual human. And I'm like, there's as I mentioned before with with that whole exchange on uh, during part one. And seeing it again in part two, there's huge potential with applying Hamon in this way. And I mean, like, huge potential. You can just control other people. You could probably control your enemies and just get them to, I don't know, fucking kill themselves or something. So it's weird that, like, this is a huge, super important way that you can use Hamon, but we rarely see it come up. And we only see it come up in these minor moments. Yeah, I completely forgot that there was another instance of Hamon controlling a body um, with Wang Chun. But yeah, this is like a, a very OP move and for it to just be used sparingly in a street fight that really doesn't have any consequences is kind of odd. Yeah, I think it's I think it's like too OP of a move. Like I think that would have just really kind of changed the the way that they approach fighting with Hamon. But then it's like, why introduce it then? <laughs> why introduce this as a thing if it's not going to be used when, again, it is super OP and has a lot of potential? But a Rocky forgot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Moving on to the next scene between Caesar and Joseph, which is, again, just fucking amazing. It starts off with Caesar entering the room and does that fucking jump sit into his chair as dramatic as fucking possible and it pisses joseph off and i just love that so so much yeah i like how he says like why does this guy have to sit down so so dramatically and this is also the first scene that we're starting to see that caesar is kind of on the same level or has a similar personality to joseph because before they they've been showing us a very stark contrast between the two because caesar always acts well buttoned up and all put together but in this moment, Caesar at first can see right through Joseph with the cards up his sleeve. And then Joseph flips that on him immediately and calls him out for having a mirror on his shoe. So 
this shows us that they may not be as different as they first appeared to us. Because if Caesar is this, you know, proper and respectable, why would he use a cheap trick during a card game as well? I think I've said this before, like, Jonathan is probably rolling over in his grave seeing the things that Joseph is doing. But I'm sure now Zeppeli, or Baron Zeppeli, is rolling over in his grave knowing that his his descendants are also as degenerate as <laughs> as the Joestar descendants. Yup. <laughs> and I do want to give mad props to Joseph's voice actor, um, Tomokazu Skita, because he does a fantastic job, not only in this episode, but in his whole performance as young Joseph with being very overly dramatic or like super animated and making really funny noises. Like in this episode in particular, it's anytime he gets really annoyed by Caesar, he makes like, I don't even want to attempt it, but just noises like shush and all this stuff. <laughs> shush. <laughs> and he just like. He started the TikTok movement. <laughs> yeah. And so he he's really good at at portraying Joseph's level of frustration and annoyance with Caesar, especially when he has those inner monologue moments as he's like watching Caesar do something annoying and then commenting about how annoyed he is. So props to his voice actor for always doing a fantastic job with Joseph, but doing an exceptionally good job in this episode. And leading in to the final arc of this episode, um, we have the car pull up in front of, I don't even know where they are, the hotel or some room that they're in, um, mm-hmm. in some fucking building, and it's some German guy named Mark, and then they're going to go see the other pillar men. And this is really funny because, again, Caesar's teasing Joseph the whole time, but the one moment that really stuck out for me is when they're celebrating Mark's engagement and the car is fucking swerving and slamming into like other cars and into a building. And then Joseph and Speedwagon are in the back like, yo, can you watch where you're going? I'm like, that's that's a little over the top. But I guess, you know, Jojo logic. Mm-hmm. And for them to even mention that this, again, this inconsequential soldier is getting, is supposed to get married in the next week. That already seals his fate by at the end of this episode it's like that you know that typical trope of oh this character is gonna have a happy life when all of this is over but obviously that's not the case for mark or suddenly they're dedicating a whole episode to a a certain character's backstory out of nowhere like you know they're gonna fucking die yeah (laughs) when they finally reach or i guess not even before they reach um where the pillar men are at we see where the pillar men are at um, and we see their amazing poses that they have while they're in their slumber, especially Wamu, who looks so incredibly uncomfortable in his like eternal slumber. I don't know how he can sleep like that. Like he's got his arms kind of twisted around him and man, I just don't know. It does not look comfortable at all. Yeah. It makes you think, what were they doing whenever the, they were turned to stone? Like they, they just wanted to pose like this as you know their their final move on earth or something <laughs> they wanted to look fabulous for when someone found them again <laughs> mm-hmm. and just really quick i wanted to call out that it's implied that they find this carving of the pillar man at the coliseum which i didn't realize because again now that we've watched all the current jojo parts that have um, been adapted to anime the coliseum also appears in part five as a key location where I believe Giorno meets Polnareff for the first time. Yes. Yeah. The Coliseum is a huge thing that, you know, when you're first watching Jojo, you don't realize how important it is. 
But yeah, things kind of do come full circle for Italy, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. And I think it's because Araki is just very much in love with Italian culture. And so he wanted to have have Rome appear twice in his in his series. This whole thing with the pillar men in this final arc is just oh, it's just so dramatic in the best way. So first off, um when they first wake up, Wamu's hole in his forehead opens up and it's like this black hole and there's air whooshing through it. And it's a guy a spiral lo- power. Yeah, it's a spiral power for anyone who watched Gurren Lagan. And this guy's looking in it and then like the horn shoots out and pierces his brain. And the first thing that came to my mind was, don't put your dick in that. Ew. <laughs> what the hell? I guess, yeah, it's true. But my question here, too, is what prompts Wamu to wake up at that moment? I don't know, because he's got light shining on him. Mm-hmm. And, like, I just, I don't get it. Like, why, the, like, as he's piercing the soldier and, like, bathing the UV lights with his blood or whatever... He's still getting hit with UV lights, but it's like completely unaffected by it. Yeah, I was thinking about this, um, and you know, maybe it's something that Araki just forgot again. But we've already seen that it's established that the first pillar man, Santana, he was awoken because he was able to feed off like people's blood. But here, like the carvings were just exposed to light; they weren't being fed anything, and so I don't know if it's just because. You know the the pillar these pillar men um, had a notion or like had some kind of instinct that told them something is happening with Santana being resurrected, kind of like in here's my Star Wars reference for for this week, the the Force Awakens where um, Supreme Leader Snoke says like there's been an awakening in the Force, like they they feel that there's there's this momentous thing happening with Santana being awoken and now with a Joe Star coming into play in in this long game of the ultimate beings and the stone masks yeah that's that's what i initially thought it was um the other theory that i have is that everyone was too fucking loud in that room (laughs) and then they're like we're trying to sleep please shut up Mm -hmm. but i think your theory is probably more uh more feasible more grounded in the lore of the show (laughs) but as wamu wakes up he breaks free of the stone slate that he's in in such a dramatic way. He leaps out like with like his chest first and his head cocked back and his legs like pointing back behind him. And it's just so fabulous and just so elegant. And I don't know why, but he just decided to leap out of it that way. And then he proceeds to, um, I don't even know what you would call it, some like slow-mo move where he like sticks everyone's hands together and... I'm like, that's really cool, but do we ever see that move again? I mean, I think it's maybe it's semi-implied with the way that Santana was able to absorb other people's bodies. Maybe they have that ability to kind of have other bodies absorbed into other bodies too. But yeah, I don't know if we will ever see that again um, in the future episodes of this part. Well, we'll make a mental note of it, and if we see it again, we'll call it out. But I, for some reason, I'm, I'm not able to recall any other moments where Wamu uses that same trick. So here's another power that, I don't know, seems pretty handy. No pun intended. Wow. <laughs> and then Araki forgot. <laughs> Honestly, that and Wamu stepping on his shadow. Or no, sorry, Kar stepping on Wamu's shadow. Like... They make this big thing about him, like not liking his shadow being stepped on. He finds it offensive, and he immediately attacks when it happens. But 
I don't think that ever comes up again either. And I'm pretty sure someone at some point stepped on Wamu's shadow after that. Yeah. I think that was just meant to just more symbolize his like his fighting spirit and that he's a warrior not to be messed with. But yeah, there's a lot of things that I forgot about this part that are introduced in this episode that kind of make you want to stick that as a mental note in the back of your head to see if they do come into play later on. But really quickly, can we just talk about this song that plays when Wamu awakens his masters? Oh my God. <laughs> the Pillarman theme is a banger. Yeah. And I don't know if there's actually a proper name for this song um, on YouTube for people who that have ripped the audio. They just call it Awaken My Masters, and it's composed by, verifying here, Taku Iwasaki. And this track in no way fits with the genre, the genre you typically associate with this scene or with this time period in history, but it fucking slaps anyways. It's like this mix of trap and hip-hop beats with this middle eastern sounding melody or, or lamentation and it just makes the scene a lot more epic with you know like how much it bombards you with the audio and on a side note it, it's a great alarm to kind of jolt you awake in the morning <laughs> i know we've done that with some friends like at past conventions where we wake up at 6 a.m put this on on the speaker and, and shout awaken my masters <laughs> <laughs> but yeah this is probably one of my most favorite tracks of part two and i i guess of jojo on a whole and for them to use it here as an introduction to the i guess the primary antagonist for part two was was a good choice and on another side note if you go on youtube there is actually a mashup of this song with little john's turn down for what and i think whoever created it this mashup, they called it Turn Down for Wamu. And it, it works so well. And it's definitely a song that they should play at, you know, raves, at anim anime conventions. Um, and it definitely tops the Lil John times Lazy Town mashup by a very long mile. If anyone's familiar with that Cooking by the Book mashup. It's a really good mashup, the Pillarmen and, uh, and Turn Down for What? Like, it works so fucking well. <laughs> every time it comes on, because it's on your Spotify playlist, every time it comes on, I'm like, yes, let's go. Yeah. <laughs> and honestly, this makes me think I, I should have put the Pillar Men theme song as one of the memes for this episode because it kind of is a meme itself. Mm -hmm. Like you'll you'll see, I don't know, like you'll see memes and then people, or something referenced about like Pillar Men or the mask, whatever. And then in the comment section of like that Reddit post or that Twitter post, people will be like, ay, 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 like they say in the, the, uh, the fucking song. And that's all you need. You just need those two letters on repeat and you'll know exactly what that person's trying to reference. Mm -hmm. So I think that this should also be one of the memes for this episode. Yeah, it's definitely a, a music highlight of this entire part. And while it's not a meme necessarily, I do want to comment um, on how thick, and I mean thick, the Pillar Men's thighs are. I mean, there's that one part where Wamu, I think it was Wamu, I don't know, it was Wamu or ACDC, one of the two, like walks over and like crouches down. I'm like, damn, those are some explosive thighs, <laughs> dude. <laughs> and tiny, tiny little shorts, little thongs. Oh, yeah, I remember that as they were walking away. 
they're they, fucking yeah. saunter and like their asses are hanging out and they don't give a fuck. Mm-hmm. And as they're walking away, we get that moment where Wamu shoulder bumps Mark and shears off half his body, but somehow through Jojo logic and plot armor, Mark is still able to talk and have like a <laughs> yeah. fucking conversation with Caesar and tell him that he's in a lot of pain and he just wants to die. <laughs> I'm like, I'm pretty sure half your brain is gone. I don't know how this works. Yeah, it was all just for a dramatic effect. And obviously this was foreshadowed with the way that Mark said he was supposed to get married after this tour in Europe. But I guess it, it's nice that Caesar was able to use his hormone to put Mark at ease. But yeah, there is no way that he could have spoken that much without like dying of shock. I actually don't know how I feel about Hamon being used to euthanize Mark. So like, I don't think there's anything wrong with Caesar doing that, but knowing that Hamon can actually kill humans in this way kind of like makes me have some pause around the power. And I'm sure that it's strong enough, you know, to to kill other humans or whatnot, but we've only really seen it used in situations where it's trying to kill off like an evil creature and it's being used in a good way. So I'm like, there's like similar to the whole, you know, controlling another being with Hamon, there's also huge potential. And I think it's just OP of Hamon to be able to like suck the life energy out of someone and kill them that easily. So, and I'm sure, you know, Mark didn't have a lot of life energy left in him after that Mm -hmm. moment, but it was just kind of weird. Like it's like the first time that we see Hamon used in what's supposed to be a good intentioned way, but it just feels like Hamon could be incredibly dangerous even to regular humans. Yeah, because it basically puts Hamon in the same category as the power of the stone mask, which which sucks the life energy, right, out of out of whomever it affects or whatever whoever the stone mask user is, whatever people they're trying to suck the life energy out of yeah and like again besides like the the non-human creatures we've seen it used on before this we've only seen hamon given to others like my you know my final hamon that zapelli gives to jonathan in part one Mm -hmm. we only see it given to other people but this is the first time i think that we see um life energy taken from another human so it's just odd to me it's very odd i guess it's Here's my other Star Wars reference. Kind of like the Force can be used for both good and bad. But yeah, this is the first instance where it's actually, Hamon is actually used in partaking of life. So I don't know. Rocky forgot again. That's all he can chalk it up to. But I think Mark's death um, is an important plot device, I guess, in the development between Caesar and Joseph's relationship. Because it's after this happens that Joseph calls out to Caesar and they hit that fucking amazing pose. One of the, to me, what's like an iconic pose um, where, I don't know, Caesar's got his face covered, kind of like Jonathan's iconic pose. Is that where, oh, wait, I was going to say, is that where Joseph got his pose with the hand over his face? Oh, well, in this one, Joseph's like looking sideways with oh, yeah. his leg kicked up. But yeah, they like, I like how he calls out to Caesar and then boom, they hit this awesome pose together. And I think this marks the moment when the two of them are finally starting to like not side with each other, but now they have a, a common understanding. They have a common goal. And they say, mm-hmm. this is the enemy. These people are fucking crazy. We need to stop them. So while they're not going to have a perfect relationship immediately after this, as we'll see in the next episode, I think this is the moment. That pose that they hit marks the moment, the turning point for the two of them. 
And this is the second time that the protagonists are avenging a Nazi. <laughs> that just, oh, yeah. <laughs> that just blows my mind. Like, if you heard about this in any other form of media, media, it would just be nuts. But this is JoJo, so we're, we've already accepted that it's going to be nuts. <laughs> so two more things I wanted to mention before we wrap up this episode. Um, the ED now has all three of the Pillar Men and Caesar um, as, you know, part of the uh, the scroll that they do and, you know, where they show all the characters. But similar to the actual episode, they hide ACDC and Cars' faces um, because I don't think at this point they've actually shown their faces in the actual episode. Oh, so yeah, that, no, they didn't. that little detail I thought was really nice too because, I mean, that would have just been a fucking spoiler for anyone that's watching for the first time. So them taking the, the time to actually do that was pretty cool. Kind of like how in the earlier episodes of part two, they would show young Speedwagon and then transition him into old Speedwagon. Those little, those little um, you know, attention to detail moments I always appreciate. I feel like that's something that is also carried over to part three where, spoiler alert, Dio's actually alive. <laughs> oh, shit! <laughs> but they, they shroud his face for a majority of the part until I believe the, the Crusaders first meet Dio in person, right? I think so, yeah. So nice to see that there is a connection there between part two and part three. Uh, one comment I wanted to make on the credits is I'm pretty sure like so far in this first season that encompasses part one and two, they've only used the portion of roundabout that incorporates like that guitar riff in the beginning. But here the, the music actually takes a portion from, I guess you could call it like the interlude of roundabout where it's it's a more intense rhythm and intense melody and i the way i interpreted it is like this is the musical representation of the conflict taking a bigger turn right because it's in this very intense portion of yes's roundabout and that's coupled with the introduction of the three um strongest pillar men that we've seen so far at this point and like we get obviously in the episode we get a visual representation of that because Wamu just walks straight into mark and mark is completely obliterated in half so i think the fact that they use this portion of roundabout um is to signify that this conflict is a lot more complex than we imagined oh i never thought about that but yeah Mm -hmm. that would make sense it's kind of like, I don't know, aligned to the development of, of where the story's at. Right. Which is, yeah, I, I just like how David Production is using every bit of this song, again, to kind of tell the story of, of the Joe Stars with, with the way that the music, I guess, is split up in the song, too. The other thing I wanted to mention um, is something that I actually only noticed for the first time during this rewatch in preparation for this podcast episode, and that's that we get a rant. I don't know if it's random, but we get a full screen shot of one of the carvings in the wall where the pillar men are being held, and it's of a butterfly. And I'm like, why is there a butterfly? Butterflies aren't really a part of part two. And then I noticed, too, as you're getting that scroll up during the ED and it's showing all the characters, towards the top of the pillar, it kind of has, like, butterfly wings sticking out in, like, the center. 
And I'm like, is this an homage to Jolene from part six? And I'm going to I'm just going to mention that because there's already been an announcement about part six and that it's about Jolene. So I won't say too much more other than that. But we all see that she's got like a butterfly tattoo and like butterflies are kind of a theme on her clothing. And I'm like, what other reason could there possibly be than to have, um, yeah, to have an homage to Jolene? So I like to think that's what it is. Yeah, I think it was completely intentional on David Productions' part. Because I'm pretty sure at this point, uh, when part two was adapted for anime, part six was already out. Um, So I'm sure this is kind of like when they added the Joestar birthmark on Joseph's back that one episode or two episodes ago where it didn't originally appear in the manga but they did it here because they wanted to kind of encompass the entire history and culture of jojo so i'm sure that was the the intent here too with including the butterfly carving just to be like an easter egg for those longtime jojo fans who have waited so long to see this anime adaptation that they drop these nice little hints of things that connect to sub or like to future parts yeah, it's kind of like um, the the same Easter egg that you called out in the last episode of part one where we see Irina and Jonathan get married and they're standing, they're like oh, posing in yeah. front of that stained glass window and you had hinted that, you know, there's a fan theory that what's actually shown on that stained glass window is an homage or an Easter egg for a future part. Well, now with our new format, we can actually come out and say that the theory, the fan theory, is that that's supposed to be Star Platinum from Part 3. Mm-hmm. And that kind of, to kind of go off of our format even more, it bolsters the theory that Star Platinum is actually Jonathan Joestar's fighting spirit. Which I could totally, totally believe. Mm-hmm. But yes, thank goodness for our new format or our updated format where we can now openly talk about some of these fan theories, these major plot points, these small little Easter eggs and nuances that we we see throughout these episodes because everything is all interconnected. And as we mentioned before, David Production does a fantastic job of having major attention to detail and really giving the fans um, all sorts of reminders or little hints or just giving us all the things that we love about jojo and now we can talk about that i'm so excited for our future episodes to be able to talk about all these things i'm so hyped yeah it's like what kevin feige said with the mcu it's all connected and that's my marvel reference for the day (laughs) (laughs) and so we move along to our final thoughts for part two episode five Ultimate Warriors from Ancient Times. So what are your overall thoughts about this episode? It's so good. The humor, the comedy is on point throughout this entire episode. I adore Caesar and Joseph, not only after they become close friends, but even in these early moments where they're learning about each other and are trying to trust each other, but they just don't at this point. Um, and of course, the drama that surrounds the the Pillar Men, both in the sense of like the drama that they're a huge threat to humanity, but also how fucking dramatic they are with everything that they do, even down to like the way that they walk is just so much fun to watch. I love, love, love these antagonists and they're probably um, probably up there on my list of like best Jojo antagonists. So I'm going to enjoy the rest of part two so, so much. Um, but what are your thoughts on this episode? Yeah, I thought this was, a good episode for the first half of part two that 
Again, it expands upon the growing threat of the Pillar Men, and that's coupled with one of the nastiest JoJo soundtracks to date, and I say nastiest in the most respectful way. <laughs> um, and I do love that, again, we are introduced to the relationship between Joseph and Caesar here, and as I had hearkened to, to before, it's kind of like watching the first half of a, a buddy cop film where these partners are still trying to get a feel for each other and they're just blending heads, but then they come together when they realize there is this conflict in front of them that they need to team up on to properly take them down. And so with that said, I'm kind of eager to see how Caesar puts his bubble blowing ability to the test against the Pillarmen in the next episode, because I honestly don't remember how he uses it. And again, it's just the weirdest ability for a Hummon user to, to have. It's like, you know, if, if this is basically what SpongeBob would use if he had a Hummon power. <laughs> but would SpongeBob be any good at his Hummon power? <laughs> That's a good question. That can I mean, be, he's, he can, is a bubble-blowing master, though. That's true. He can make all sorts of shapes, like a giraffe. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Maybe that can be a discussion episode for, for down the road. Caesar versus SpongeBob, who would win a Hamon bubble fight? <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps up episode 14 of Strictly JoJo. If you enjoyed the podcast and would like to support the show, then head over to patreon.com slash the Strictly Series, and be sure to subscribe on your favorite podcast service so you can be notified when new episodes premiere every other Monday. Follow us on Instagram at The Strictly Series and on Twitter at Strictly Series and connect with us there or on our website, thestrictlyseries.com to share your thoughts on JoJo's Bizarre Adventure. You'll also find more info on Strictly Anime, our other podcast for anime reviews and discussions. Thank you so much for listening and sharing our love of JoJo. Stay weeb, everyone. To be continued. <laughs>